I don't have any illusions. I have a special understanding of Ireland. I've tried to understand as much as I can, but I always hate hearing Americans prescribing things about Ireland. People make one trip and then they're telling you about this and that. And the Irish can be enigmatic. That was Peter Quinn, essayist, novelist, and making a return visit to Irish Stew now as a memoirist with his book, Cross Bronx, A Writer's Life. And I'm John Lee. And I'm Martin Nutty. Welcome to another episode of Irish Stew. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Ireland of the Welcomes magazine, celebrating 70 years of Irish history, tradition, culture, and community with outstanding photography and inspired writing. Get Ireland of the Welcomes delivered to your door or give a gift subscription and keep the Irish legacy alive for generations to come. Subscribe today online at irelandofthewelcomes.com. Hey, it's Martin Nutty, and you're listening to the Artist Stew podcast, and I'm joined in our virtual studio with John Lee. So, John, tell us who we got coming up on this episode of Irish Stew. Hey, Martin, uh, good to be back on the stew and to bring back a guest from season two, Peter Quinn, and I'm going to make it simple and just do the uh, the bio for Peter Quinn in his most recent book, Cross Bronx, A Writing Life, which we're going to talk about here today. Peter Quinn is a novelist, political historian, and foremost chronicler of New York City. He's the author of Banished Children of Eve, which we talked about in season two as it was being republished. And it was an American Book Award winner as well. Looking for Jimmy, A Search for Irish America, and a trilogy of historical detective novels, Hour of the Cat, The Man Who Never Returned, and Dry Bones. Peter Quinn, welcome back. Hi, John. How are you? I know you had a chance to meet Martin recently at one of your many uh, readings and uh, part of your book tour with Cross Bronx. I like to get stewed with you guys, even though it's early. (laughs) Well, yeah, there is a little stew going down throughout the book as you uh, you know peel back the bandaid on your own life. I'd like to start with a question, Peter, about about your book and about some influences. Your book begins and ends with another writer, Bill Kennedy, yeah, the uh, the who won the eighty four Pulitzer Prize for his novel Ironweed and wrote many other great books centered around that. Provincial outpost of New York State, its capital, Albany. Uh, the book ends with an interview you did of him on your last day of your own uh, Albany exile. And Cross Bronx begins with a dedication to Bill Kennedy that read to Bill Kennedy, who told me what I needed to know. <laughs> what did Bill tell you? He told me a lot. You know, I was very lucky to get to know him when I was up in Albany. Um, we uh, we had a first writer club in New York. It was Malachim Court and Frank and some other people. And uh, everybody was talking about Bill Kennedy. So I sent him a letter and said, we'd love to meet you. And we all came up to Albany, about 10 of us. And he thought it was going to be a literary session of like old retired people. And Malachi and Frank and never shut up. And he was he just fell in love with everybody. And after that, became very friendly with him. And he um, bought the house where Legs Diamond was killed in Duff Street. And he used to work there. And I used to go to see him occasionally. And he would tell me things about writing. Um, that, you know, it just reinforced some things and opened my eyes on others. I remember he saying, you know, writing is a matter of renewing your vulnerability. 
you write, no matter who you are, you're going to put it out there and get stomped. And if you can't take the stomping, don't write. He said, you, you write, writers write. They don't give up. You're a writer. That's who you are. And uh, you write every day or on a set schedule, four or five days. It's not something you just go to when you feel like it. So he taught me a lot. And uh, it really helped me in writing. I was just thinking about Banished Children of Eve, just starting it. And it was very daunting. Um, then he told me, you know, if you write two pages a day and you work 180 days um, a year, you're going to have 360 pages at the end of it. And it's accumulation. Writing, is, writing a novel is accumulation and rewriting. There's no, nobody writes and it just stays that way. You write and then you go back and rewrite. All writing is rewriting, he told me. So, you know, he gave me, uh, I, I took one writing course in my life at the new school. I had a good teacher, but he told me, he told me the stuff I needed to know. Your books have a lot of meticulous research in the past. And uh, I know your initial uh, version of Banished Children of Eve weighed in, I think it's something like 800 pages and an right. uh, 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 author who you respected and wanted to read it wouldn't read it until you <laughs> trimmed out 200, which you which you realized made the book uh, even better. Is the editing process kind of baked in for you by this time? Or did you, you know, where there's some great stuff that was left on the cutting room floor in your own editing of, of this book? You know, Hemingway referred to killing your babies. <laughs> You become, you fall in love with your own words. But uh, he sent me, Bob Craney was the guy, and he sent me back, and I resented it first. And then I went back and said, you know, the reader doesn't have to know that. I have to know that. And I wrote that section to explain the character to myself. Mm-hmm. And at mm-hmm. the end, it wasn't painful. Stuff fell away, and the, the main story came out um, clearer than it was. I had a long preface with um, different articles. I had one article, and I had like three and Bob said to me, you know, you're making it hard on the reader. You want to get, you know, you can't make it, you, you like this stuff and you're a historical researcher, but the reader doesn't have to know this stuff. And I use that criteria. What does the reader have to know? Mm. I wrote a long um, thing of Stephen Foster having an affair with uh, Elmer Ellsworth, the first officer killed in the Civil War. And when I got to the end of it, I said, boy, I enjoyed writing that, but the, <laughs> the reader doesn't have to know that. <laughs> you know, I was saying that, um, in my view, Foster was probably gay, uh, and that was enough. But I had explained Foster to myself at that point, so I could write with more confidence about him. And that's the you know very frustrating thing about novels. You can go down long corridors, and you get to the end of the corridor and say, that wasn't really necessary. i got to go back and get to the main story. Like keeping your eyes on the prize, the thread, the, the um, narrative thread. And somebody like me, you know, I, was, I studied for a doctorate in history at Fordham, and I love doing research. Um, it, was, it was a passion with me. I could never get out of research once I started. It was a great excuse not to write. Writers are always looking for reasons not to write. And if you're doing research, it just piles up and piles up. And then you're trying to figure out how to use it all. And then what I realized, I can't use it all. The purpose of research is to make you feel comfortable in where you are. So I can write. You're so comfortable that you're writing out of the experience instead of above it, you're in it. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of research to feel what were the streets like? What did it smell like? Uh, part of it is intuition. A lot is research. Especially in an era of Civil War where everything is, you know, it's, the city was not there and it was there. I think I was getting pretty crazy at the end because sometimes I felt 
the city of the Civil War was more real than the one I was living in, which is pretty crazy. Peter, for me, the historical research shines through in your writing. And I believe that Banished Children of Eve is one of the great novels of 19th century America, certainly Irish America. But the Irish American experience you reveal is not always the most comfortable for readers. Talk to us about negative feedback. Oh, yeah. I got a, when Banished Children of Eve came out, I got all these reviews, just wonderful, wonderful reviews. And then this critic in the Washington Post just killed the book. He said it was lurid, and it was not the New York of Edith Wharton. And I was like, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was really vicious. It was like, oh, you know, I, I felt the stomping. I, I still feel the hill print on my head. And occasionally uh, thought about, he was a teacher at Amherst going up and beating him with a baseball bat. But I, I listened to the better angels of my nature. And I've got other you know, reviews that I thought were, who? who likes a bad review, but, and this is just author's prejudice, you know, they didn't get it. They were like, they're criticizing the book I didn't like. Or reviews that say, you know, some reviews are, well, this could be this and this, you know, well, it isn't. That's not what I wrote. Uh, you know, writers love critics who praise them and hate the ones who don't. It's pretty simple. Yeah, the ones that love you are the perceptive critics. Yeah, and I've had perceptive critics. I, I had a wonderful, wonderful review by a, a professor at Harvard. It was the, it was the lead review in the Barnes and Noble uh, newsletter, um, of the man who never returned. And <laughs> it was interesting because there were letters that came in saying this was much too intellectual. I didn't know what he was talking about, <laughs> but I got it and was very grateful. And my, my, I had a wonderful, wonderful editor. My first editor, Al Silverman. He was a, a man of rabbinic wisdom, and he said, you know. Never write a critic, never complain, just take it, go on, go to bed, never thank them, never complain. They're doing their job, you have to do your job, which is to write. And if bad reviews are going to stop you, you're not a writer. And, you know, Kennedy's got, his Quinn's book got stumped. Um, so you never know. You know, you can't write a masterpiece every time. Part of being a writer is making mistakes and, and not. Um, hitting the target. Randall Jarrell once said, you know, a novel is a long narrative There's something wrong with it. Peter, I understand you were working on a novel which got set aside to do your new memoir. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened and how Cross Bronx came into being? Well, I was working on another novel. And, you know, I got got sick uh, during COVID, not from COVID, ironically enough. And uh, it, my uh, immune system wound up attacking the nerves in my legs, made it difficult to walk. So we're sitting in the day, kind of perseverating over this novel. And then on the side, I started to write down. I don't know why this happened. You know, sometimes you don't know. Thoughts came to me, just memories. So I wrote them down. And and then uh, it just began to go. I put the novel aside and... I, re- I took 10 years to write Banished Children and five years to write Hour of the Cat. This was nine months. It just came out. It was all this stored up memories. And I, I had always told myself I would not write a memoir because I didn't want to get caught in betraying confidences or uh, hurting people's feelings. I, I don't think I did. Maybe one or two. I haven't gotten any complaints yet. 
And it was just uh, looking at my life, um, going back, and I'd never looked at it like that. And I was kind of fascinated. Chronologically, stuff became clearer to me as I wrote. It's kind of a, a memoir isn't an autobiography, and it's not a history, and it's not a novel. It's, as the word says, it's memories. And memories are very subjective. Um, you know, I, I've said that people in the same family can have different memories of the same events. I wanted to ask you about the kind of the whole question of memory. And that was like my fifth uh, question under the, t- under the heading memory was right. the people who's, you know, you were at odds with their memories, your, your wife, Kathy, your twin brother, Tom. Uh, did you find that you all had very, very different versions of what had happened? No, no not very different. Um, there were other things like relatives who thought uh, that I was, uh, yeah, this is an Irish thing. I, I was writing about my father making that public and I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. It's not fair. Um, and, you know, writing about ancestors, they can't defend themselves. And why are you raising all this stuff? I had an uncle who was murdered by William Moretti and he has descendants. And why would you bring that up? Those were the main complaints. Right. Airing. Family secrets can be a delicate business. The dirty linens. Especially in, in, you know, my family was very interested in cleaning up the past. When I wrote Penis Children, my mother was horrified by the book. And she said, we never knew people like this. (laughs) I said, no, but we were people like that at one point. Mm -hmm. In writing of your father in Cross Bronx, he comes across as a bit of an enigma. Maybe emotionally distant. To what degree do you think your deeper family history formed your dad? I don't know about an enigma. He was he was pretty out there in who he was, but he didn't uh, he didn't deal with my brother and myself. Let's say in any affectionate way, he was very demanding, and we failed to measure up from very early on. And he came out of you know very straightened circumstances, the Lower East Side, uh, and he had gone to St. Bridget's. Grammar school and the De La Salle brothers took him under their wing because they said, you know, the kid is really smart. We sent him to Manhattan Prep in college, where he was most distinguished student in the in the college. And we came along, and he insisted we go to Manhattan Prep and uh, uh, Manhattan College. Uh, and we didn't we didn't one only didn't shine. We were in the dark most of the time. We couldn't we couldn't measure up. And we, you know, he felt that way. The teachers felt that way. Well, you're Peter Quinn's sons. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a common thing, I think. For He was quite a presence. Peter, in retrospect, doesn't that seem like madness? But you and your brother, Tom, carved out successful writing careers. That was all after he died. You know, he was very happy that we became court officers because civil mm-hmm. service job. He grew up in the Depression and civil service job was the golden ticket. Yeah, and his view that was a you know we we were kind of ne'er do wells, and this would keep us fed and clothed and allow us to raise families and don't aim too far over that because you're not going to get there. And the whole idea of writing, you know, growing up in the Bronx, we didn't know writers. It was you wanted a steady job, right? And I mean, you know, I I kind of bummed around. He told me, "Don't leave. I forbid you to leave the, the court office." So I'm 24 or five. I don't have to listen to him, but I do. Yeah, and I didn't leave till he died. You you wrote Peter. He said uh, my father expected excellence. It was nothing to be congratulated for. Right. He focused on failures. Right. 
and you know at the same time i you know he he was very admired um in in the community he was you know an outstanding judge and i i tell a story in the book um my brother tom was bartending at mcfeely's on 23rd street and there were lawyers there and they're talking about judges and he said oh my father was a judge peter quinn and the lawyer said to him he was the most compassionate judge i ever appeared before now we thought it was not that compassionate to us when judging but we were his sons and uh, you know, he had a hard father. I mean, you, you are the father that your father was to some degree, or you react to the father that he was. And uh, he, he kind of was stayed under his father. His father was a tough immigrant labor leader who wanted to, who my father at one point wanted to be a songwriter. And he, he quashed that. You know, he, he became a civil engineer and then a lawyer. And, was, and then ran for the assembly, which we wanted nothing to do with which is one of the ironies in my life. I'd won nothing to do with um, politics, and I wind up speechwriting for the governor of Albany. Talk about unanticipated uh, turns in your life, you know? And then with my kids, I was really, I had no capacity for discipline. Kathy, my wife, did all the discipline. And my son is now in his 30s, and he said at one point, he said, you know, mom is the one who, <laughs> she told us no. We had to hear more. You never told us no. Yeah. So well, what can I say? You know, I had discipline for my father, the brothers, the police. I just didn't have the capacity for it. Peter, your paternal grandfather seems to have been both absent and given to a, let's call it, a harsh model of parenting. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. Well, he also took my father to appear uh, Coney Island, threw him off to teach him how to swim. And we used to find that a story amusing until I realized, you know, he was six or seven years old and he's on the verge of drowning. I don't think my grandfather would have let him drown, but he was he was toughening him up. He thought, um, if you're going to get through life, life's not going to give you anything. That's what he learned as an immigrant, Irish immigrant who emigrated to America at age 10 and never went to school again. And, uh, you know, life was hard and you have to be hard to deal with it. And... My father was half that, but he had a very loving mother, and he was half his mother and half his father, so he could be very tough. Uh, but he had an affectionate side, though. We didn't see much of it. But he had a wonderful relationship with my mother. They were very close. Uh, she was the only person he was ever afraid of, I think. She was a college graduate. She had been a Latin major, and she, uh, she, he, he, he recognized her as an equal, which a lot of men in those days didn't. Peter, uh, all throughout the book, we're meeting all kinds of people. We're meeting, you know, your family members, your friends, uh, notable people in the arts and politics. There's another uh, character to your book, and it's right there on the front cover, Cross Bronx. Uh, The Bronx, the the most furthest north borough of uh, New York City, the only the only borough that's actually on the mainland of North America. And I, you know, as I was looking at the cover of your book, it really encapsulate encapsulates a lot of what you were talking about the the old brownstone neighborhoods divided by a perennial traffic jam of the Cross Bronx Expressway, the the trains and cars jamming into Manhattan, the looming uh, housing projects in the distance that would sort of suck at the life out of the Bronx later on. Uh, tell us about the Bronx, your, your version of the Bronx and, and uh, you know, maybe what, what, what it is today. 
Well, you know, I think it's kind of ironic. When I grew up, the uh, Bronx was kind of equivalent of blah. It was the blah borough, really. Brooklyn had its own, you know, character. Um, well, I, I, would, I wouldn't count Queens and Staten Island uh, in the mix, but sort of the Bronx and Manhattan and Brooklyn were the, you know, and Manhattan and Brooklyn kind of had a lot of character. And the Bronx was perceived as being low, middle class, middle class, boring. Uh, it wasn't actually, you know, where I was was a mix of Jews and Italians and Irish, and it was really interesting. And then um, the disrespect that the government showed to the Bronx, that they, they dug a ditch right through the heart of the Bronx to bring traffic from Long Island to New Jersey and connected the New England Expressway and the Major D. had nothing to do with the people who lived in the Bronx. And it cost like the equivalent of billions today. <clears throat> and they disinvested in housing. The housing stock was getting old, and the cross Bronx told people, get to the suburbs. <clears throat> Here's the roads to get out of the Bronx. If the government had sat down in 1945 and said, how could we screw up this borough? They couldn't have done a better job. There was no investment in rehab of housing. Jobs were leaving. Nobody tried to figure out how to get new jobs uh, into the borough. And at the same time, Jews and Italians and Irish started to leave. You had this mass immigration of uh, the great migration from the South, rural African-Americans learning to adjust to city, Puerto Ricans. And, you know, all crises in cities, immigrants are always rural people coming to cities. That's what's going on in China now. And they're not, they have to adapt to um, a new way of life. And it's always hard. And there's always confusion and um, unrest. And that was the Bronx. And in my lifetime, I saw it go from this very prosaic place to a synonym with urban catastrophe. Mm-hmm. When I was a quarter of us in the Bronx, we had all these um, film crews coming through, BBC, German television. You know, they couldn't get enough of the catastrophe that the Bronx became synonymous with. I've often thought of looking to find the documentaries. I think I might be in one or two of them. But I don't really have the energy. <laughs> I, never, I was never offered a movie contract on my appearances in documentary. You know, our uh, recent guest, Brian McDonald, he wrote a book uh, about an Irish-American family over over several generations in the fire department of New York, the FDNY. And the Bronx was a major player in that book. It, you know, the Bronx is burning. And he described uh, where the fire department would be sent to a fire and and told not to stop at the three other fires on the way, but to go to that particular fire. There's a wonderful book by Dennis Smith. It's uh, probably 40 years old now. Report from Engine Company 82. And it, it was the busiest firehouse maybe in the United States at that point. Uh, and it's a, a gritty on-the-ground story of what that was like watching the South Bronx burn down. And that, he tells that story too of you know being on one fire or getting back to the firehouse and being immediately called back like three times in one night mm-hmm. and how exhausting it was. But what, what what did the Bronx do for you though? What did it uh, you know seems to it seems to have just been such a major foundation influence? What do you still carry from the Bronx up in Hastings on Hudson? <laughs> I carry the you know I think that the Bronx was it was not a romantic place. You were realist and uh, you learned to deal with a lot of different people, and uh, I think you learned to be hopeful too. You know what I, what I noticed was I would go on these housing tours on the South Bronx with the judge. I'd be in a uniform. It was like, this poor judge, if anybody comes after him, because I'm going to be running in front of him. 
but I did have a uniform and I was impressed by the people that I saw. In abstract, you think, oh, it's all criminals and, you know, burning the, and there were some very thoughtful people. There were women who were raising children who were, it was very difficult and they wanted to get them to college and they wanted to get the housing fixed. And, and they were also, there was a lot of music and vitality to the, to the streets. It wasn't this graveyard that you saw from a distance. It was it was a human place filled with with human beings with big ambitions for themselves, and at the same time it was racked by drugs, which was the other part of it that you know people giving up uh, a drug culture that was destroying lives. But there was hope there too, and uh, a lot of people did get out and went on to careers, um, and that's the nature of New York too to give people a second chance. I go to back to with my brother occasionally, you know, or take my, uh, I have a granddaughter now, take her to the zoo, or we go to Arthur Avenue. And occasionally we visit old neighborhoods. My wife was from, a, well, she was originally from Teller Avenue, 161st, right by Yankee Stadium. And then when I met her, she was 181st in Valentine. And uh, it can be pretty, still pretty shabby and uh, but you never know. I mean, when I think back to the Bronx, I'm 75, so I think back 70 years ago. It was just a, a you know a cohesive place. Uh, the housing was not that old yet; it had been built a lot of it in the 20s. So in 70 years, everything changed. So I say to myself, "Well, I'd, I'd like to stick around for another 70 years to see what happens in the Bronx." But I have a feeling I'm not going to make it. Mm. Peter, tell us a bit about working for two of New York State's most notable governors, Hugh Carey and Mario Cuomo. Given what some might term your modest Bronx background, was it challenging to work with them? Yeah, well, you know, I was very fortunate because I came from the same background that they did. They were out of borough, uh, raised in parochial schools, um, and they, you know, they they had a basic kind of New Deal mentality that government can do things, help people along. They were not ideologues at all. They were not wedded to any, you know, strict philosophy. Uh, and Kerry was a very decisive man. He had been, as a young man, he had landed two weeks after Normandy and fought all the way to uh, the Remagen Bridge. And his thing was, he made decisions. He once said to me, you know, only two things I can be, right or wrong. So... <laughs> I might as well make, go ahead and make it. And he could be very blunt. He could be very supportive. He had a great sense of humor. I really enjoyed working for him. And I met Cuomo on the plane going up to Albany because we used to fly up on Monday morning. And the governor was in the front. And I didn't sit up front because I didn't want to be told to rewrite the speech. I sat in the back where Cuomo sat. And just, Peter, Mario would have been the lieutenant governor at that time. Yeah, right. And they barely talked. Um, Cuomo once, uh, Kerry once said to me, you know, he would have made a good uh, sociology professor in a junior college. Um, and they had a terrible relationship. And uh, the more I talked to Cuomo, the more I admired him. He was really thoughtful guy, uh, very um, intellectual in a way, but very down to earth. You know, he could have been a professional baseball player. And, uh, you know, as a lawyer in Queens, one of the greatest testaments to his lawyering abilities was when he would sum up to a jury in a civil case on Court Street. Lawyers would come to hear his summation. Now, they wouldn't come if Jesus Christ came back to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. So you'd have to be quite a speaker. Uh, and he was, and he was also uh, really interesting. Now, the thing about Cuomo was when I first met him, I thought, 
this is the most transparent, knowable person. He's just, everything's up front. And by the time I left, I said, this is the most opaque, unknowable person <laughs> I've ever met. He's got so many levels to him. I don't know if he's telling me this, so I'll tell Jim, who'll tell Jane, who'll tell John, and come back with the governor with, you know, with a new story. Uh, that's who he was. He was very careful um, in some ways. You know, Andrew has certain ones of his qualities and not others. Like he was intellectual. He could be very decent. Uh, he really cared about people at one level where Andrew wasn't. We always said about Andrew, he was, was like the portrait of Dorian Gray, the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, where Mario was, uh, was uh, Dorian Gray and the portrait was Andrew. All the characters <laughs> showed up on Andrew. Ouch. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was, well, you saw what happened. He didn't have a friend in the world when he was went out of office. Can you tell us a bit about the odd flirtation that Mario Cuomo had with running for the presidency of the United States? I remember that well. And it was a real case of would he or wouldn't he? He had a plane shot to take him to New Hampshire for the primary. And he had talked to me, you know, eh, kind of cryptically about would I be, would I be willing to leave Time Inc. and be a speechwriter? Part of me didn't want to do it because I know the life of political speechwriter is pretty brutal. But another part of me did because the Democratic Party was such a part of my life. And, you know, I thought he might make a good president. Mm -hmm. So uh, I said yes. And then uh, I'm in my office. I told my uh, superiors at Time Inc., I'm leaving. I'm going on the governor's campaign. And a guy comes in my office one afternoon and says, Cuomo just announced he's not running. So I felt like I looked like a total idiot. And uh, I called him up the next morning. I knew he got up at about five. I got to stay true. I said, can I talk to the governor? I said, Governor, I don't want to be crude, but what the fuck was that all about? And uh, he said, well, I couldn't leave the budget with Ralph Marino, which was kind of ridiculous, but I wasn't going to challenge him. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why he didn't run. I got some theories, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, at part of it was, was I thought, think the lack of confidence that an out-of-borough Catholic guy, Italian, could would be allowed to run the country. Um, and, you know, it was a heavy stone to push up the hill. And he essentially, when he came to political organization, only trusted one person, Andrew. So that worked in New York, but you couldn't run 50 election campaigns like that. Peter, uh, to go back to you, Carrie, for a moment, I think, you know, the Cuomo legacy is more... Uh, more memorable or more closer, closer in our memories. You carry, uh, actually, I used to see both of those governors in my previous uh, checkered career working at the racetrack. When you were in Attica, they used to visit, right? Exactly right. But no paroles. I could not get a parole. I did get a stay of execution. Uh, But, uh, you know, Mario came to the track kind of because he had to, because the New York Racing Association was sort of a political hot potato. You carry came because he loved it, had a great time. He sort of, you know, if you think of an Irish American politician, he's the image that comes to my mind most readily. But he's somebody who had some uh, impact on the future of Ireland in the peace process. Yeah. Well, he also, you know, I say the um, New York of the Empire State was really the, the beginning. The was um, Al Smith and the end was you carry. Uh, Al Smith put all these reforms in place. It was really a new deal in New York before there was nationally. 
uh, workman compensation, all, all these the, the labor laws. And when Kerry came along, the state was teetering on bankruptcy. And he had to step in, and by force of will, he really saved the city from becoming the ward of the federal government. Uh, he had to bring together, he did the impossible thing of being labor leaders together, and union and bankers. And it would have been a catastrophe in retrospect if New York had gone into bankruptcy. And he doesn't get, you know, people say, oh, Koch saved the city or Big Mac. Well, Koch came in 77 and the fiscal crisis was three years old and it was being resolved. Uh, and I, I don't think people give him the credit. He was a governor in, who dealt with a big, big crisis. And the thing that makes leaders great are if a leader doesn't have a crisis, they're usually not so remembered, which I think was the thing with Cuomo. There was no great crisis in his reign. And there was in Kerry's, and he he really handled it um, amazingly well and deserves a lot of credit. Now, I think it's ironic that he got a tunnel named after him and Koch got a bridge. I said, I think it should be the other way around. But Peter, talk to us about the anonymity of being a speechwriter and the associated lack of recognition. Just how painful is that? You know, if you don't want to make that deal, you shouldn't be a speechwriter. And both Kerry and Cuomo are not people you just handed a text to, you worked on it with them. Sometimes they just read it. Sometimes a speech was like a security blanket. They knew that if they couldn't extemporize, they had this totally usable speech in front of them. So you never knew. But I always found it, uh, you know, I, I don't think I ever wrote an easy speech. Uh, I kind of labored over all of them. And I tried not to recycle stuff because I thought that was boring. Uh, and, you know, it was, I learned a lot about writing novels from writing those speeches about it's work. It's hard work. And you have to go back and read what you wrote and be willing to revise it. Uh, so, I mean, it was a great lesson in writing, speech writing. It's a profession for young people. because It's very, very exacting. And, you know, with business, they make a decision in a week or we'll do it in a month. Well, with a political speech writer, it's tomorrow or tonight and I have to have it. And you write three bad speeches and you're out. It's the immediacy of the thing. And, you know, you, you can't take it personally because they need the words and they're going to put somebody on that job who uh, who can do it. You know, Frank Lennon was the bureau chief of the Times in Albany. He told me early on, he said, never mistake a politician for your friend. Uh, and that's not anything against them, but they have to get the job done. Um, their, their career depends on it. And if people can't help them get the job done, they're, they're out. So people used to, Cuomo was a great schmoozer of people, and they'd think they were his friend, and the next thing they know, they were out. I know people still feel the sting of that. I would say, look, that's the deal. <laughs> you don't get the credit, you get the blame. And if you don't if you don't want to play that game, don't be a speechwriter. It's pretty simple. And the other thing is you don't get, Cuomo especially, I don't care, he didn't seem to care that much if they knew he had a speechwriter. Cuomo didn't want anybody to know he had a speechwriter. So the anonymity of it kind of what led me partly to write novels. I said, I'm going to die and nobody's going to know I wrote anything. I've got to get my name on something. Peter, during the Cuomo years, I was interested to see you worked with the late Tim Russert. For my money, he was one of the best TV interviewers in the business. And his work on NBC's Meet the Press is, to my way of thinking, the gold standard which subsequent TV political interviewers just haven't approached. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, he was a very easy guy to get along with. And, uh, you know, he never wrote a sentence. 
wasn't he wasn't a print journalist he was a television journalist that he discovered this personality um it's an interesting story he was flying out to uh, san francisco with the governor and larry grossman who was the head of nbc and they got in a conversation and he said oh you'd make a great television commentator and russell didn't have any background on that and he kind of he winged it and he got really good at it um you know, and he was he was already a personality. He had helped when he had been Moynihan's he had a high profile. So um but you know, he would have ideas about speeches. Wouldn't write anything, but he'd give you stuff so you could maybe go in this direction. Which was helpful because he had his really fingers on the on the pulse of the public. And he was an enjoyable guy to be around. He wasn't some people in politics are really odious. Uh, and ambitious and willing to step on other people. I mean, he wasn't like that at all. He was an Irish Catholic kid from Buffalo, and it showed he was, you know, unpretentious. I think that showed in his uh, television career, too. Talk to us about the state of American TV journalism. I don't watch enough. I, I swore, <laughs> after the uh, election, the Trump election, <clears throat> the first one, I kind of swore off. I was like an addict for CNBC. And, mm-hmm. and I just said, these, you know, what you're saying, it's a lot of the same people all the time interviewing the same guests. And there's nothing that really, you know, if I'm watching CNBC, I know what I'm going to get. If I watch CNN, I know what I'm going to get. I don't watch Fox, but Fox, but I know what I'm going to get. Uh, so it's that predictability and echo chamber that I just stop watching. And I watch the Channel 13 News at 7, and that's mm-hmm. it turn it off, go up, read or watch a movie with my wife. I just, you know, I could watch three hours of that stuff when those elections were going on. But, uh, I'm not, I'm hardly, I don't watch anything now, all the stuff about the midterms. And, and you know, there's a lot of blather and predictions. Oh, people are wrong. And yep. CNBC has the same guess. Yep. CNN has the same guess. This gets very tiring after a while. What gets me about those guests, uh, we're kind of getting off the track here, but uh, you don't know who they are. You know, they they keep popping up. They're no longer journalists. They're not government officials. They're right. people with, you know, they're from the American Freedom Institute and different think tanks or former campaign aides. You just, they, they tend to have an agenda, but you don't know what their agenda is. Right. Anyway, Peter, we started off with, uh, I know your book is in three sections, Bronx Thonks, which is uh, flipping the Ogden Nash verse of the mm-hmm. Bronx No Thonks on its head. We, we got into a bit of that. We've been looking at part two of the book, The Capital Years. The most intriguing title of the three sections is the third and final, Killing Time. Right. What did you mean there? When I went to Time Inc., I thought I was, you know, the luckiest guy in the world. What a, it was one of the great corporations, American corporations. Lucid founded Henry Lucid in 1923. They developed Time, Fortune, Life, which was the great pictorial magazine. Um, all, all these, they were a wonderful company. And Lucid's um, kind of ethic was you took care of people. You didn't, if they lived to five years, you groomed people. It wasn't in and out. Um, and it was very beneficent in its benefits. Um, I've been retired for 15 years thanks to the pension largesse of Time, Inc. Um, and all that's gone. There are no more pensions anymore. I was the last tier of people to get it. And Time got sucked into this vortex of mergers that, that came in the 80s. 
um, where one company devoured another and they did away with all these um, kind of any genteel feeling about publishing business just went out the window and it became, you know, dog eat dog. Time Inc. had a uh, merge with Warner, which was a strange merger. Uh, Time Inc. was buttoned up Ivy League and Warner was essentially one man, Steve Ross from Brooklyn, uh, who didn't finish college and claimed he did. Uh, but after a while, you know, that merger kind of worked out and then they absorbed Turner and then there was the catastrophe, AOL. But it was like if you didn't grow, you were finished. You had to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that kind of steady tradition. When I went to Time Inc., I figured <clears throat> I'll be here for 25 years. Um, you know, I, I might graduate to some other job eventually, but this is a really nice, this is a decent, interesting place to work. The CEO has the Henry Luce pedestal, which he can talk about social issues and people don't find it strange. And the CEO I work for, Dick Monroe, was wonderful man. And then that all, it just became another kind of corporate circus of debt and uh, merges and getting bigger. And when, when I started Time Making, it was essentially uh, CNN, uh, no, essentially uh, Time, Time Inc. and HBO. And by the time I left, 23 years later, it was HBO, Time Inc., the Atlanta Braves, Progressive Farmer Magazine, uh, Disney, um, Warner Brothers cartoons. I mean, it was, you didn't know what it was anymore. Content, right? It's all well, became content. Yeah, they wanted more and more con content. I love that word. I really hate that word, content. <laughs> no, I know. I, I, I had these networks, and I had cable networks and all this stuff. And it got harder and harder to write about because it made less and less sense. And then, of course, AOL was supposedly the defining merger of the 21st century, which it was because it was disaster. <laughs> and, you know, I always say I was rich for nine months because the, I had all these options and they went through the roof. And then I rode the elevator down, um, not selling them because I think, well, it's going to go back up. You know, I say um, there are two things that make men dumb, sex and money. <laughs> well, sex didn't make me dumb, but money did. I don't know if I want to get into that first topic at all, Peter. <laughs> I left with no nostalgia. By that point, it was like, God, get me out of here. Uh, and we moved from uh, Rockefeller Center, which I love because it was an East. I, I come in on Metro North and was, I just walked to work. And then they moved to Columbus Circle, this big building. And they were going to etch in stone AOL Time Warner. Well, they would have had to blow the stone up within a year. And now, you know, AOL, it, it was really interesting because. We heard from all these people, this is the defining brand of the 21st century, right? Kids are growing up on AOL, so it's not going to go away. It has this wall garden, um, and they're going to put all the uh, Warner Brothers and Time properties behind the wall garden, and you have to pay. It made sense to me, uh, but it was at one point they said when Napster came along, you know, you better check with your kids about downloading music because it's illegal in those days. And, you know, if a time... Warner executives found his family is downloaded. So I, I, I said to my son, it was about 14 at the time, do you download music? He said, yeah. I said, how many songs have you downloaded? He said, about a thousand. <laughs> so I figured, oh my God. But it didn't matter. I mean, the whole old paradigm of the media industry blew up. Mm -hmm. Just, and this wall garden, time, AOL had 22 million subscribers. They projected in 
10 years, they would have 44 million. And they were so sure of it. You know, they said globalization will just keep going global, demographics, technology, it's all on our side. And they're cocksure. So I warn my kids, if you're in a room where everybody's sure about one thing, get out as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. I'm going to blow up. Peter, every job has its share of good and bad bosses. You had one at Time Warner during the Jerry Levin years, who you refer to as Beelzebub. Not exactly a term of affection. Talk to us a bit about this character. He was, you know, one of these, he was not well-educated, but he was well-educated in the politics of the corporation. <clears throat> and I, I think that's the most important thing in a corporation is to understand its politics. You don't have to be talented, but you have to understand how to manipulate the different levers. And uh, one thing I didn't understand was <clears throat> he started telling me, your speeches don't sound like Jerry. Jerry doesn't. I've been writing Jerry's speeches for 10 years. He sounded like me. And, yeah. And it was very odd. And then I realized, and he was telling people, I don't, Peter's up to this job. I, mm-hmm. I could walk into the CEO's office. I didn't go through him. And because he was a control freak, nobody could see the CEO if he wasn't in the room. Because he thought they would poison the CEO against him, which he would do on a regular basis against other people. So, uh, and I was like this 17 or 18 years when this guy came along and, and he eventually blew himself up, but I didn't, I was like an anxious mess for a while. I figured I'm going to lose my job at this late. And Jerry was a strange kind of guy. He, uh, you know, I liked him a lot. He had a lot of talents, but one of them wasn't loyalty. And he was like, he was going on to the next set of people and leaving the people work from behind because supposedly we were entering a new era. But there is no justice in this world because Beelzebub left. He was pushed out. He went on to make about $35 million digital. This side of the grave, there's no justice. <laughs> but I kept my job. That's what I wanted. I, you know, My ambition from the time I started working was to have a comfortable retirement and just to do what I'm doing this morning, reading the paper, talking, getting ready to go up and write. Mm-hmm. Um, simple. I, I had no great... I was, you know, I said rich for nine months. My accountant said, you're going to have to buy something, a house for deduction. And I really didn't want to. So I don't want two houses. I don't want two cars. I don't want two Y. I want one of everything. And I want to leave life as close to what I came in with. The accumulation of things has never had much attraction for me. Just leave me alone. Let me read and write and raise my family. Um and the irony was I got sucked into this public life. And I, I left it with no regrets. And I was glad for the uh, experience uh, and the people I met. I met some terrific people, which is one of the reasons I wrote the memoir, just, you know, recount what I saw. And, uh, but, you know, uh, I think I said this the other night at NYU that uh, a lot of people, you know, lawyers will say the most unreliable thing there is is an eyewitness. Mm-hmm. Well, memoir, your eyewitness to your own life. So take it for what it's worth. Hey, Peter, one, one aspect of, of your life uh, that we haven't touched on. And, you know, we, we usually have a lot of Irish conversation in these yeah. episodes, Irish, Irish American, Irish diaspora. We, we yeah. covered some of that ground with you in our, our first episode when we focused on uh, banished children of Eve. But uh, in Cross Bronx, there's some uh, 
travel logs of trips to okay. Ireland. What, what, can you just tell us about what it was like for you to go to Ireland at various times in your life with your, in a work setting and uh, with your wife, with your family? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, the, the trips with the, the governor, uh, I made two trips to Ireland with Kerry, and those were very interesting because he was treated like royalty. Uh, you know, I didn't go into this in the book, but that was the time, uh, 1980, when the legal Irish were pouring into New York. And uh, he brought it up with Hawaii, who didn't really pursue it. And the governor of New York was not much he could do about that. He didn't have, he, he would talk to Schumer and uh, other people about it. Um, but, you know, it was really interesting to travel with him because the governor of New York has a high profile in New York, but he had a really high profile in Dublin and Ireland. And Kerry involved himself in the, in the situation in the North. He was one of the four horsemen, uh, Kerry, Moynihan, uh, Kennedy, and I forget who the fourth was now. Um, and they really pressured the British. You know, they were not, they didn't want to see the IRA. They just said, there's an international element to this. It's not going to be solved by the British government, and, and it's not going to be solved in the North. And the British were adamant, as they were for 100 years, that this was just a domestic problem, and they didn't want any outside interference. And what the Four Horsemen was saying was, you know, there has to be some kind of willingness to compromise. It's like what John Hume said about uh, the Unionist Party. You have to have a political platform that goes beyond the word no. <laughs> and uh, eventually that's what happened, you know. It was the intervention of the EU and uh, the United States that made the Good Friday Accord possible. So, you know, they were they were on the right track. And... uh Kerry made a personal appeal to uh, Margaret Thatcher with, over the hunger strikes. He said, you know, this is not helping anything. You're just going to make it worse. You're creating martyrs. Uh, and she didn't even respond. And, you know, Kerry once said he hated violence. He said, I saw, in the Second World War, I saw a lot of people die, and it's a horrible thing to see. I want to see anybody else die. I just want to see them come to some peaceful resolution or begin to come to some peaceful resolution. He had no illusions about one day they were going to love each other. but. If you put political processes in place that both sides could agree to, then you could move the ball forward. Without that process, you couldn't. It's just going to be two armed camps. And that's what they're trying to do, create this political process. And that's what the Good Friday Agreement was about. And, and Peter, in your, in your trips there, how did uh, the Ireland of your imagination match up with the Ireland that you actually found? Well, I had gone to school at the University of College Galway in 1977. So, you know, I, I, I knew I wasn't a, a neophyte, and I had been several times. Um, I worked for, uh, at Fordham. I was the graduate assistant to Morris O'Connell, who was the great grandson of Daniel O'Connell, and I worked on the O'Connell papers. And he got me a grant to go to Dublin to work on the Yates, Yates papers. I wrote an article, a long article for Air Ireland about Yates. So, you know, I knew Ireland pretty well, which is why Kerry took me along. I knew people and uh, where to go and what to see. And he was very, Kerry, really relaxed. When when he got off the plane in Ireland, he was a different person. Mm -hmm. He just totally relaxed. And he, he loved the country. He loved the people. He loved to sing. He loved to gab. He felt right at home. I remember the last night we were there, he went to Dirty Nellie's and he kind of, took over the place singing and telling stories. So he felt at home there. He had a big Irish element. Peter, do you have observations on the difference between the Irish of Ireland and their 
American cousins or counterparts? Well, it made me, it helped me realize they're two different, the Irish America is not Ireland. They're two separate people. Um, they share a lot, but Irish America is a very different place than Ireland, had a different experience. Uh, and I saw that more clearly. Uh, when I went to the University College Galway in 77, I was really shocked by the anti-Americanism of most of the students. It was that time the United States was involved in Central America, and there was you know, a lot of sympathy. And uh, it eventually, I mean, I got over it, but I, I couldn't, I figured I'd be getting, you know, welcome and hugged was the opposite. And I had one professor uh, who couldn't say enough bad things about Irish racism and this and that and ignorance and you know they're like a bizarre version of the Irish people, uh, which you know I, I I think there's a whole different history to the whole immigration history of uh, Ireland um, of Irish America formed a different people. They weren't as politically powerless as they were in Ireland. Um, they had different opportunities. They had different burdens. And, you know, there's, there's a lot in common. There's, a, there's an emotional bond, but it's, um, I'm an American first. Yep. And they're Irish first. Yep. And, you know, I don't get over that. I don't have any illusions about I have a special, I have a special understanding of Ireland. I've, I've tried to understand as much as I can, but I always hate hearing Americans prescribing things about Ireland. People make one trip and then they're telling you about this and that. And the Irish can be enigmatic. Uh, you know that, Martin, right? <laughs> what? what? Uh, so, yeah, I did. You know, the first time I went to Ireland was 1969. And I was shocked by the, how, how poor it was and backward. Uh, the, the goods in the stores were really shoddy. The food was terrible. We stayed in a hostel in Dublin that was looked like something out of a post-war Berlin. Uh, and it just seemed, you know, drab. And by the time I, we went, I went, took my kids back three years ago, it was different. It was a, you know, mainline European country, which the EU was, was really changed everything. And it was the first time, you know, Ireland is now under the sh from underneath the shadow of Great Britain. It's got a separate life. Everything doesn't have to be channeled through England. It's got direct connections to Europe, the United States. In a way, it's kind of ironic. In the 19th century, the Protestants in Ulster had this international connections, you know, with the Ulster Irish in Canada and Australia. And now there's isolated people, and the Republic has all these connections to the rest of the world. Which I think adds to the paranoia of the unionists that they uh, they're isolated. They don't have a lot of they don't get a lot of sympathy in England. Right. They're like you know they're sick of of the, of the tail wagging the dog, um, British. So that's I, I spent some time in the north too, and that was confronting the hatred and the distance between the two communities. It was so deep. Shocking! It was. I, I had lunch with an elder of the Presbyterian Church, a nice man. He could be on any bar stool in the Bronx. White haired, ready face, and he kind of, he kind of shared a secret with me. He said, "You know, we're two different races. <laughs> we come from this Scottish. Yeah, it was really nuts, the theory, but the thought that they were these people looked exactly alike. Yeah, it just you know reinforced to me the human capacity for making differences where they don't exist." Right, right. 
We always have to be different from somebody else and usually superior. Hey, Peter, we come to the point in the program where Seamus Plug has entered the room and he is offering you a chance to plug away of Peter Quinn Incorporated. Can I sing? Absolutely. I wrote no. a little <laughs> No, you know, I, 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 I'm not um, telling any tales when uh, I say a writing life. That's what I wanted to do. And I feel um, a satisfaction that I did have a writing life. You know, that's what I wanted to have. Uh, and, you know, all my books, I write about New York, really. Banished Children and the detective novels move around the world. But Finn Dunn, the, the, the protagonist in all three books, is a quintessential New Yorker. Uh, and I, I enjoy giving expression. I felt, you know, I'm writing out of the deepest part of me, the memoir, Banished Children and Detective Novels, uh, which at the core, I feel like more than anything else, I'm a New Yorker. That's my, that's my central identity. I could never really, you know, my, my daughter's moved. She's in Paris. She's moving back to New York and my son's in Brooklyn. And I'm very happy that they inherited this love of New York because the first of my family landed in New York in 1848. And I say, you know, when nobody else wanted us, New York took us in. Uh, and New York has taken in a lot of people who nobody else wants. And they've usually added to the strength of the city. They haven't dragged it down, which is always expected. So that's been a source of satisfaction, too. I say at the end, you know, I don't know the difference between fate and luck, but I, I, I've been very lucky. Very lucky. And I try not to take that for granted. You end on a note of gratitude. Yes, gratitude. I have, uh, I always felt that when I started Banished Children of Eve, I felt if I don't write this book, I'm going to be on my deathbed struggling for air, uh, trying to <laughs> finish the book. And so when I, when I finished that book and it came out, I felt a sense of relief. And when I go, these books will be behind. And in one way, I wrote this memoir because I wanted to tell a story of where I come from and what I saw and who I knew, but I wanted to leave a record for my kids because I didn't have, uh, I think this is true. A lot of families that came in the famine, they were not terribly interested in the past. I have a vague idea where my ancestors came from. They were interested in getting on in America. Uh, and that's all right. But I think I became very interested in this history. I didn't know that kind of drove my life and I wanted them to have it. They, I say to my wife, you know, our kids are the first Americans, really, because we grew up in a parish life in the Bronx, and that, that was a totally different world. If somebody asked you what you were in, in the Bronx, you didn't say I'm an American. You said I'm Irish, Jewish, Italian. And my kids don't have that sense at all. They, both my kids married non-Catholics. They don't really attach to the church the way we were, uh, and they have a much bigger sense of America. They feel, you know, they could move to California or wherever. Um, and I could never do that, although I'm glad they're anchored here. Uh, so it, it's, I've seen a real change, tremendous change in my life among, um, America. And I still remain hopeful that, uh, in the end, it's going to work out because that's what I want to believe. How can you believe the opposite? That's too terrible. I have grandchild grandchild now and I look at her and say, Oh my God, what are we leaving? A mess. But it's always been a mess. If you, if you were sitting in, uh, in um, London in 1940, it was a hideous mess. And somehow we get through, I hope. 
I remain an optimist. Well, Peter, uh, you, you've taken your, your own messy life and organized it beautifully here in Cross Bronx, A Writing Life. It's published by Fordham University Press, which I believe has republished several of your other books, if not all of them. They republished all of them, yeah. Yep. Uh, as, and of course, they're available at Fordham University Press, but they're available anywhere you can buy right. books. So obviously, Martin and I couldn't recommend this book more highly. Uh, it's a treat to read. It's a, it's a great view into New York City. It's a great view into Irish America and some amazing uh, people that Peter has dealt with throughout his life uh, in the realms of business, entertainment, the arts, politics. Uh, Peter, you have to make me a promise before you leave. Thanks, John. Write one more memoir. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write uh, Crossed Out. <laughs> <laughs> the final years. Yep. And John, you do me a favor. Sure. Give me back the money you borrowed. I mean, it's been 10 years now. Peter, I was going to say something about, you know, you're, you're, a, you're someone who's used to exposing yourself in public. <laughs> and uh, this time it was a little bit different. You did it uh, in the pages of a book and not mm-hmm. in an old trench coat. But anyway. Thank you so much for giving me the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. Hey, John, great to have Peter Quinn on here again. I always look forward to talking to Peter. His experience is just so rich. He understands America and especially New York on an absolutely unique and detailed level. He also has had a lot of experience in Ireland as well and is smart enough to know how little he knows. But I'm always in awe of him about how much he actually knows. Yeah, I think he's one of the greatest interpreters of the Irish-American experience out there. I had sort of two kind of buckets of thought about the the conversation. The first one I'll I'll put under the heading of from uh, down and dirty to high and mighty. You know, we saw his middle-class life growing up in a housing uh, development in the unglamorous the Bronx, the Bronx, as they would say up there. And you know, we also find him side by side with two of the most charismatic governors in the state's history and at the very, very highest levels of corporate America. Yeah, he's really had a unique life experience. And obviously the thread that winds its way through that is his ability with language to craft a sentence like no other. And that is certainly consistent with the Irish tradition. We are, at heart, storytellers, and there's none finer, to my mind, than Peter. The other thing that struck me was sort of thinking about him initially as a speechwriter. It's collaborative, and it's anonymous. And then his career as a novelist, where he's solitary, but his name goes on the product, and then finally, a kind of inward turning journey as a memoirist, you know, really exposing the self. And you'll note, I carefully did not say exposing himself. <laughs> yeah, you guys uh, tend to go at it a little bit in, in the best traditions of Irish slagging. It's something that actually uh, I was intimately familiar with in Dublin, but I pretty a little out of practice. So it's kind of a delight to see you guys interact with each other. Yeah, I think this memoir is a gift for readers, especially readers of my age and maybe a little bit older. It's telling a story of New York at a level of detail with a level of personal experience that's truly valuable. It is 
a legacy for us, you know, that are interested in the immediate area. But I also think as somebody that's interested in genealogy for family and for Peter's children, for his grandchildren and those that come after. It's a really worthy book. I'd strongly recommend it. Yeah, Martin, and, and through it all, the love story, the story of the girl from Hot Dog Beach. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Listener.